How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just, I'm on the back of a bad, I think this is interview seven or eight this week. So I'm on the really? back. Oh. <laughs> I'm just trying to get a bunch done before Christmas and um, I get back to my book. So I, I've got them all waiting in the wings. Okay, that's good. I hope yeah. you can hear me okay. Yeah, you're fine coming through loud and clear. How about this side? Yeah, you're you're fine. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Great. great. Well, listen, I know we had a, a little catch up the other day. I've, in fact, I've been desperate to speak to you for a long time. And uh, ever since I, you know, I've, I've seen some of your stuff online and heard about your exploits. Um, yeah, you know, I know that we're both uh, fans as well of uh, of uh, Percy Fawcett and, and and other explorers like that. And I just thought, well, look, I've got to got to chat to, to William and, and debrief him <laughs> of everything <laughs> okay. that he's uh, he's picked up on his travels. And you know, I'm so happy to have you here in front of me today. Mom, I'm glad to be here. Okay, well, that's great. Uh, I just thought we'd start um, for people that might not know you or might not know a lot about you with mm-hmm. how it how it came to be. How did you get into this the genre, the cryptozoology genre, and um, what what was that turning point or that that clinching point? There's always something for somebody that seems to drag them in. What was it for you? Well, I think it happened when I was about uh, 12 years old. I was in my grandmother's house in Scotland, in the town of Stranraer, where I'm from on the west coast, uh, the southwest coast. And I was watching a, a, an old black and white movie adaptation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. Mm-hmm. And that kind of fired my young imagination about the possibility of living dinosaurs and and from time to time, you know, you, you'd see things in newspapers and magazines about exploits like this. And I would go to the library and devour books on dinosaurs and monsters and things. And it kind of just went from there. But nothing really grabbed my attention until uh, the early 1980s when I began reading reports about the Mokele and Bembe. It, 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 reports would surface from time to time in newspapers. There was no internet back then, of course, and uh, so you had to wait until uh, a newspaper uh, printed something, uh, a snippet of information. And then from there, um, we I learned that, that by this time I'd moved to London because it was the only place where there was employment by 1982. And uh, it was there that um, I learned of um, a conference at Brighton University um, with uh, the International Society of Cryptozoology. Mm-hmm. So I went there with a fellow called Mark Rollamel. He and I both went to the Congo together in 1985. And it was there that we met Roy McCall and J. Richard Greenwell and Bernard Hoivermans and um, Tim Dinsdale. And meeting them and, and chatting with them and getting to know them was really something. And uh, I mean, these are, of course, uh, among the founding fathers mm-hmm. of cryptozoology. So getting to know them personally was really something. I mean, back then they were in their 50s and their 60s. I was 27 and now I'm in my 60s. <laughs> so time really flies, believe me, really when, you, when you get past 30. But um, yeah, I kept up um, my correspondence with Roy McCall up until he passed away. And also uh, with Tim Dinsdale, uh, who invited me to his home um, after my return from my first Congo expedition, but I don't want to get too far ahead of the story. 
but um, I devoured with great interest the uh, reports of Roy's uh, two expeditions to the Congo Republic and also um, a report by Herman Regusters, um, you know, the jet propulsion engineer from Pasadena, California. And uh, there was a, a number of problems with his report that, that I kind of unraveled. Um, I know that if you remember way back in 1983, the Congolese zoologist Marcelin Ananya mm -hmm. claimed a 20 minute observation of Bokele and Bembe. And, uh, but again, having been to the Congo and been to the village of Boa uh, on the Likwala Serb River, which serves as the, they are the kind of regarded as the owners of Lake Tally. Uh -huh. It was there that uh, we began to um, uncover information that threw a lot of doubt on the claims of Herman Regusters and Marcelin Anani. Oh, wow. Yes, um, uh, but no, I, I, I wasn't there with Regusters. He did claim several sightings of what he called a long-necked member. Um, it's possible that he and his wife, Kia Regusters, when they were paddling around the lake in their inflatable boat, might have encountered a Michaelian baby, the neck and head coming out of the water briefly and looking at them, then going down again. That could have happened. Um, but when he claimed that he and 22 other people simultaneously saw the neck and head moving through the water, we could not find a single um, eyewitness from the village of Boa that could verify that. In fact, wow. 22 members, uh, people from the Boa village, including the uh, the vice president of the village, went with him to Lake Telly, and uh, they all denied a lot of what mm. Herman Augustus was reporting. Now, they did hear the roars or the, mm. the very loud vocalizations of a strange animal that couldn't be reconciled to any large known African animal. Um, I have that recording. I think a cleaned up version of that recording on my YouTube channel, Crypto mm -hmm. Hunt. Um, but again, with Marcelin and Anya claiming that 20 minutes, again, we couldn't find anyone that could verify that. And when we went out onto Lake Telly ourselves in 1986, um, we found that the location in the lake that he claimed the animal was moving around seemed a little bit too shallow to have mm -hmm. a hippo-sized animal with a long neck. Um, what uh, on discussing this years later with Roy Mackall, Roy believes that he uh, that uh, Marsland saw a large specimen of the giant African freshwater turtle called the uh -huh. Trinox triangus, but he just didn't want to admit that. And I think uh -huh. he probably embellished the story of observing Omakeli and Bembe to try and attract more money and, and scientific expertise to the Congo. Um, but one thing that we found when we were at Lake Tally was the reports of these animals come from, or, or rather um, emanate from the northern part of Lake Tally. There's a number mm. of water channels called Malibos that merge with the swamps uh, towards uh, heading west towards uh, the Bai River. And uh, you can make your way through those water channels to the lake from the Bai River, but it's an awful lot of work because you have to you know, hack your way through fallen trees and log jams and all kinds of things. But when we attempted to explore that part of the lake, um, the village elders would absolutely not let us go near that area because it's taboo. Um, mm -hmm. This is where Mokele and Bembi was speared to death by the Bangombi pygmies who lived in that area back in the 1960s. What is so interesting about that report is that in Mfondo at the mission station where Gene and Sandy Thomas, American missionaries, um, had their mission station, 
they had two very elderly pygmies living there at the time who described to us the killing of that Mokili Mbembe. They were there. They, they described the killing wow. of the animal, the, the strange noise it made when it was being speared to death. And they were, the, they were very young at the time. They were children, but they were there when it happened. And they uh, described this strange kind of cry the animal was making when it was being speared to death. But being children, they did not participate in the feast. And when the animal was mm-hmm. cut into slices and the meat was cooked and everyone that, that ate of the, the meat of the, the animal died shortly after. Wow. That is one of uh, two reports that I have of a long neck, long tailed, bulbous bodied animal being killed and consumed by villagers. And the other report happened in, I think the, I think it was in Cameroon. Um, but uh, the one thing I can tell you is that um, we came away with the distinct impression that Mokili and Bambi is a, a living animal, that, uh, but it's rare. It's semi-aquatic, it's rare, it moves around a lot, so there's no one place you can go all the time and see them. And we found uh, years later, um, in uh, we went back in 1992, that was myself, and uh, a lady called Elizabeth Addy, who's an optometrist from Yorkshire. And uh, we just went there to take medical supplies and, uh, and uh, things to the mission station, and we went on a river trip, mainly to do medical uh, assistance work in the villages. So uh, we missed Boa the second time around because Boa village became a flashpoint at that time. In spite mm-hmm. of the fact I made many friends there, after us, um, I think in 1987, a Japanese expedition went to Lake Telly. And uh, they again hired people from Boa to take them there. And um, the, the, there was a fellow who went with them that's known to me. He works for the Ministry of Forests. Uh, and his name is uh, Josie Borges. And uh, he was the deputy to Marcelin and Anya. And he told me later that the expedition saw this sort of a hump moving through the water, but mm-hmm. no long neck. So that hump could have been anything. It could have been a stray hippo. Yeah. It's unlikely at Lake Tally because there are no hippos anywhere near that area. Um, so it could have been anything, but it was a sizable animal. Uh, so, but the Japanese ran into all kinds of problems. Okay, now um, when uh, Herman Augustus returned to the United States to a big press conference and he was telling everyone just what a great explorer he was and, and all these discoveries he made at Lake Tally. And um, the, uh, the, one of the reporters got a little bit um, impatient and said, well, you said you got pictures of the dinosaur. Where are the pictures? And he said, well, the camera didn't work in the humidity or it fell in the water or something like that. And the man threw his clipboard at him like a frisbee. <laughs> and um, later he was on a, a, a talk show. I think it was a morning talk show. Um, again, giving this big speech about how he was this, this great explorer and his endangering his life looking for this dinosaur that was chasing them around the lake. At that particular time, the missionaries, Gina and Sandy Thomas, were on furlough in the United States and they were watching the show. So they called up, they called <laughs> in. It was one of these telephone uh, chat shows. And um, the announcer said, well, we have a phone call coming in from the, the Reverend Eugene Thomas, his wife, Sandy, missionaries to the wow. Congo. And, and um, Herman Regussus refused to take the call. Wow, because um, uh, everything I heard about him from Roy McCall, from uh, yeah. from uh, Gene Thomas was was less than complimentary. Okay. Um, but he wasn't the first Westerner to reach Lake Tally. A Frenchman went there in 1976 to do some scientific 
uh, work of some kind, probably collecting insects because that's uh, they have a lot of rare insects mm. around that area. And uh, so he uh, he didn't uh, make any reports of, of anything large, strange, unusual there. But it's a tough place to get to. It's um, it takes you you're, you're marching through the forest for five days to get there. So you know, and it's uh, and you have to camp down a couple of times in the night. It's a very dense. Um, large forest, so um, it's really a very challenging place to reach. Now, going back to the Japanese expedition, mm. um, the uh, the villagers of Boer, by the way, were not paid by Herman Regustus. He did not pay them wow. the money he promised them and left them. And that, and of course, we went there shortly after him, so it was very difficult to get their trust. Now, after us in 1987, were the Japanese. A number of the Japanese expedition were literally held hostage. Um, at Boa Village, while one of the uh, the Japanese uh, rep- uh, members of the team was sent back to Brazzaville to get more money t- to pay this exorbitant amount. So this ended up reaching the ears of the government. And so they sent uh, the military uh, up to Boa Village. So they sent 40 heavily armed troops to arrest the, the, villa- the, the chief of the village of Boa. Goodness. To basically teach him a lesson, uh, to to make to, to make him understand he's not running an independent state, mm. you know, and so uh, to to remedy this situation in the future, the Congolese government decided to make Lake Telly and the surrounding area a national park uh-huh. of special special interest, and so uh, now it's an you can still go there. Mm. Um, uh, but it's an it's now a national park, and so you don't have one village or one chief controlling the whole area okay. and extracting money from people. Yeah. I always wanted to return there a second time. It's just so tough getting there. Mm. But switching to Cameroon was very fortuitous because a lot of reports coming out of Cameroon about what the Baka people call the Lakila Bembe. Mm. This um, it's just like what killing Bembe is much bigger has thick armored scaled body and the dermal spikes running the length of the head, neck and oh, so tail. So this is morphologically different in, in some respects. It, it's it's morphologically similar to the Congolese Mokilim baby, but much bigger uh-huh. and with, with much more um, morphological features being described. What I find intriguing about that is these reports come from the Baka people. They're commonly mm-hmm. referred to as pygmies. And they hunt and, and fish and, and go into very deep parts of the forest and the river system. Now, we did not know that sauropod dinosaurs had these dermal spikes mm. uh, running that, until 1991 uh, when a fossilized Diplodocus was discovered. I think it was in Texas. And the, the skin impressions were beautifully preserved by the rock. And you can see these dermal spikes running the length of it head and neck, and now we know that more than one type of sauropod had them. And mm. some sauropods had armored bodies and and so on. And so these descriptions by the Baka people were very accurate. Now, they live in these little mud huts, you know, these cone-shaped huts in the middle of nowhere. And, um, you know, the, you don't see any um, satellite TV dishes outside the pygmy huts, mm. and there's no flat screen TVs inside. They don't read National Geographic magazines. You know, they just describe to us the animals that they see and what they know. See, to them, the Lakila Bembe is just like any other animal, but mm. it's it's much bigger and it, it's very, very aggressive and they don't like it. It has what they call a bad spirit. So there's nothing mythical or magical about it to mm. them. They just don't like the animal. Unlike the Aka pygmies of the Congo, 
they're quite open about their information because the Archipygmies in the Congo believe that if you speak openly of Mokele and Bembe to outsiders, then great misfortune or even death will, will, will come oh, upon wow. you. Whereas in, which made um, information gathering somewhat difficult in the Congo. Of course, of course. But in Cameroon, it was not like that at all. They, they are happy to tell you everything they know about these animals. They just don't like them. And they're kind of puzzled. Why do you want to go and see them? They're, 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 they're very, very aggressive animals, you know. And this is why you don't see any hippos around where the Lakila Bembis or Mokelian Bembis are, um, are said to be present. And uh, I know that uh, in 2008, when I went to Cameroon with a film crew for the History Channel, um, you know, they had one of, one of the guests on the show was uh, Donald Prothero, a mm -hmm. geologist and uh, generally a skeptic, you know. He, he, and I, what missed me a little bit was he said that, Okele Mbembe is most likely doesn't exist. And the, pe and the people uh, there in mm. Cameroon, well, their perception of reality is different from ours. And I was a little bit taken aback by that because he's not speaking from a position of, uh, of mm. knowledge. I mean, he's never been there. That, that's when, when you get these people to say, well, the vast majority of scientists don't believe Okele Mbembe is a living animal. Well, the vast majority of scientists have never been to the Congo Basin. They've never explored the area. They've never spent any time with the people, getting to know them. And um, but there is has been through history a handful of Westerners who have seen the Mokele and Bembe mm. uh, for themselves in Congo, in Cameroon, in Zambia, in Zaire. What was used to be Zaire, um, you know. So we do have those testimonials because if Mokele and Bembe was a mythical animal. It would only be confined to one particular tribal group. It wouldn't be so mm. widespread, and that's why I don't know if you've got a copy of the Mokele and Bembe handbook. It's, it's on PDF. Um, that's why we've identified fifteen different tribal names. Wow! For for an animal, the descriptions are the same throughout the Congo Basin and or throughout Equatorial Africa in general. But but, but the, each tribe has a different name for the animal, but the descriptions of the animals remain fairly consistent, which tells us that they're talking about a real animal, although it is rare, it is dangerous, it's semi-aquatic, it moves around a lot. So it's a bit like looking for a moving needle in a haystack. Absolutely. And just to, to go into the sort of the topography, the environment in which this animal lives, I mean, it's vast, it's impenetrable, even for those people like the back of pygmies and and uh, the surrounding residents of that area. I mean, they don't live really, really deep in the forest, these people. So I would imagine that's where most large animals would reside, away from people that are going to hunt them and perhaps take ill to their, their presence. I mean, well, what's, I your, think, what's your uh, information on the, the, the way the environment is there for explorers such as yourself? What are you facing? Well, it doesn't matter what river, whether you go on the Sangha River, the Obangi River, the, uh, the, the Tibet River, the Bai River, uh, or go to Cameroon to the Boomba River uh, and the, the Ja River. These are, are hundreds and hundreds of miles long. They're very broad, they're very deep, especially in the, in the wet season. They can get up to 40 feet deep. But they recently found that the Congo River has, has areas that are over 700 feet deep. Wow. That's a river. That's as deep as Loch Ness. Yeah. And so, uh, when the when we get information about crocodiles, fifty or sixty feet long, you know, I mean, there, there's so much area where these animals can hide, 
I mean, the forest is, is and swamps are seasonally inundated during the wet season. Um, during the dry season, we discovered that um, the animals uh, dig out caves in, in the tall, muddy banks and they retreat inside the cave and then then they, they, uh, they basically um, bung up the cave except with a little air hole okay. at top. And we found, we found caves like that there. Uh, so the area is overall, if you're looking at just the Congo Basin, it's 1.5 million square miles. And so it's absolutely vast. So if you're talking about a small but viable breeding population of, of sauropod-like animals mm. scattered around in that area, then, you, you know, uh, not just them, but also the horned animals, they call it the Amela mm. and Tuka, killer of elephants oh, yeah. in Congo, yeah. Yeah. Or, or the Ngubu in Cameroon. Again, there's vast, vast areas of forest that in they can Google, hide in. Well, what does what does that look like? Is that more of a stegosaurian type of animal, or is that being yellow, yellow, and yellow? Okay, the ngubu—that's uh, the Baka word for it—is um, it's four, it's a four-legged animal. It's as big as a, a forest elephant. It has armored body, and it has between four and six horns protruding from its head. Mm-hmm. Some of them have a neck frill. There's the river ngubu. When we showed them pictures of extinct animals. As far as the river and Gubu is concerned, they picked out the Arsenotherium as being most like the river and oh, wow. Gubu. Okay. Because paleontologists now believe that the Arsenotherium was in fact semi-aquatic, oh, wow. uh, like a hippo. And yeah. Um, yeah. now that's interesting. But in the in the Congo, they speak of the animal, uh, the Amela and Tuka killer of elephants, as having a large horn made of polished ivory. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is very aggressive. It will ambush and attack and kill elephants. And in fact, Rogusters, the Herman Rogusters expedition, did find two dead forest elephants on the banks of the Likwala or Serb River. But the tusks of the elephants remained intact, so this was not ivory poachers. Okay. But both elephants had these large abdominal puncture marks in their stomachs. And recently they found a massive dead elephant in uh, Zambia, Again, with its tusks intact, but with these large abdominal wounds. So, mm. I, I'm discussing this with Roy Mackall. He thinks that the river Ngubu could either be an Arsenotherium or some kind of, of hitherto undiscovered aquatic rhino. Because wow. there's, three, there's three or four different types of rhinos in Africa, but none of them can swim. So, this may be a, a specialized a rhino mm. that's adapted to an aquatic environment. Wow. Um, and as for these um, other animals with the, the neck frills, they do sound like, um, I guess, you know, the horned dinosaurs, you know, but um, when my uh, Cameroonian colleague, Pierre Seema, he went to a village uh, which borders Cameroon and the Central African Republic in, two, in November 2000, after David Wetzel and I had been in that area, and they had shot one of these animals. Wow. Uh, for food because it's a terrestrial and they, they butchered it up for, for, for meat and everything. And when he, because I left him with my binder full of illustrations and they picked out the Tarbosaurus as being a dead ringer uh, wow. for the animal that they shot. And they say they see them in groups of two or three, sometimes uh, two adults with a with young one. But again, the savanna is a vast area. And so um, I think if you want to explore these areas thoroughly, you need to have three expeditions on the go all at once. One's ex- one exploring the forest, one exploring the river and swamps, and the third team exploring the savannah. Wow. But all this takes time, it takes organization, it takes money. Yeah. 
My French colleague, Michel Ballot, his wife is from Cameroon, and he has a lot of uh, good family contacts there. He's been out there 25 or 26 times already, um, and he's determined to get to the bottom of the mystery. Mm. In fact, he's been successful in finding these huge three-clawed footprints um, very deep in, in uh, not just the sandy, but, but also the stony banks uh, or shingly bank of, of the Jar River. And it was clearly made, these prints were clearly made by a very heavy animal indeed. And in fact, he's found tracks belonging to different animals that French zoologists could not identify. So this is a, a veritable lost world in a way. Mm. Uh, the uh, Jar River uh, going up the mid Jar River and the forest to the west. Um, is a gold mine for, for any zoologist. But most secular scientists will not accept these stories or these reports of, of these unusual animals unless we have a specimen or the remains of a specimen mm. to present to them. Otherwise, they're just going to sit in, in their institutions and their universities and their libraries and say these animals don't exist, mm. which I think is a very short-sighted perspective. So, I, in from that perspective, I suppose you probably agree with something like yourself as well. The citizen scientists um, play an integral part in discovery, in the possible discovery of, of new creatures. What surprises me, William, in this in this world is that we seem to believe that we have discovered everything. You know, you open Google Maps and you zoom in on an area and you think that you know it, and yet there's only vast areas that have been untouched, unseen by man. I'm, I'm sure that one or two hangers-on, one or two prehistoric survivors could certainly uh, eke out living in such a vast area. Now, talking about the, the Congo, is the Congo Basin, it's great that there could be uh, such creatures as you know, the Amelia Ntuku uh, and uh, McLean Bembe, but there were also giant spider reports from that area, and I believe you went Yes. Which is it the Jabba Fofofi? How, how do you say it? Uh, the, the, the name of the giant spider in Cameroon is Jiba Fofi. Jiba uh -huh. means great or giant, and Fofi is their word for spider. Uh -huh. And um, so the thing, I picked up a report of giant spiders from Marguerite Lloyd, who lived, I don't know if she's still alive, but she lived in uh, Bristol. And uh, her parents, uh, Reginald Lloyd, R.K. Lloyd, and her mother, Margaret Lloyd, um, they were living in what was then Rhodesia, and they were kind of like an adventurous couple. They decided when they got married in 1938, they'd go on this motoring holiday through what was then the Belgian Congo. And so they were driving down a, a jungle track that had been widened to take motor vehicles, and they saw this creature crawling across the road in front of them, and they stopped to, to let it pass. And they thought it was maybe a large monkey in all fours, but uh, they got a shock of the life when it was like a, a giant spider, like a tarantula. Wow. Uh, and so he, uh, you know, Reginald, he was trying to get his box camera out. And he was shaking with excitement so much that the thing scuttled into the forest. And so when I spoke to the missionaries about this in the Congo, they they, they speak Lingala quite well. And so the, the Congolese word for giant spider is Mobali Elulu. That's in that's Lingala. Mobali it means great or giant, and Elulu is spider. And I put a giant spider presentation on my YouTube channel, which covers mm. giant spiders from all over the world, including the UK, believe it or not, mm. and also um, Papua New Guinea and and the southern United States, which 
still has a lot of swamp and forest and giant spiders are reported out of there from time to time. So the giant spider, which may be the same as the one in Cameroon, in Congo is called Mobali Elulu, uh, which is which is Lingala, and in Cameroon it's called Jibafufi, which is Baka, the Baka language. Now, when we went there in 2000, David Wetzel from Concord, New Hampshire, and I went there to basically find out if Mokeli and Bembis were known in the river system there to the people. Uh, they didn't just confirm that to us, including the, the horned animals that look, look a bit like the horned dinosaur, but also I asked about the giant spiders and the the, the pygmy chief, his name is Timbo, uh, said to me uh, through an interpreter, he said, if you'd asked me that, um, you know, if I wasn't, it was too, I forgot to ask in 2000, we were back in 2002, and it was then I remembered to ask Timbo, the pygmy chief, about the giant spider. And he said, well, if you'd asked me that when you came here two years before, I could have taken you into the forest and showed you the lair of a giant spider <laughs> that was living near the village. Oh, I could have banged mm. my head off the ground. You know, it's a, a golden opportunity missed. Now, these spiders can grow uh, anything from four to six feet. Mm. And they, um, of course, the skeptics say, well, the pygmies are making a mistake. Well, they're mm. mistaking them for tree climbing monkeys. Well, again, all you're doing is insulting the people that live mm. there. <laughs> you know, they've been hunting and living there for generations. And as if they the don't know the animals in their own environment. It's it, it's, well, it's, um, it's a, a very belittling the, sleight of hand. Well, the pygmies um, eat monkey meat. You know, that's part of their staple diet, a protein. Uh, so they they describe these giant spiders perfectly, and uh, they. And they kill them on sight because they 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 can be dangerous. They can attack you and envenomate you and make you very ill, or you will die. One of the two. And so, uh, and they grow. I mean, they they lay hundreds of eggs. Mm. Now, the thing about these giant spiders or any animal in the forest is the deforestation of southern Cameroon is catastrophic, in my opinion. And it means that many of these extraordinary creatures could well become extinct before we even have a chance to discover them. Um, and so it, it, it's really tragic. And like I said, on my channel, Crypto Hunt, I put that uh, giant spider video on there for people to to look at. In fact, there's a, I think it was made in 1941. Uh, it was uh, it, it was a Johnny Wiesmuller Tarson movie mm. where um, he was fighting the Nazis in Africa. And one of the bad guys fell into a cave and this big giant spider crawled out and <laughs> devoured the bad guy. You know, and I'm thinking, I wonder if they based that on reports they might have heard sometime ago. There must have been some sort of reports around that time. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. A lot of people find it hard from a scientific point of view to justify um, an arachnid being able to attain that size you know, because of its oxygen needs. That's, that's always... Um, something that's put forward, but is there something about the environment of the Congo that would that could supercharge such a such a creature to to attain such a size and to maintain it as well? Things there seem to grow bigger. Insects grow bigger. You got the Goliath frog, which is really massive. Um, they report on giant crocodiles there and and, and all, all kinds of outsized creatures, um, insects that grow bigger and so on. And it's because it's such a hot and humid and swampy environment, you know, it, uh, there's, it, like I said, all kinds of things could be living there we know nothing about. But uh, yeah, there has been questions raised about how a spider can attain that size. But 
um, I did consult Carl Schuker, the mm. famous zoologist on this. And he was telling me that spiders have book lungs, which does not restrict their size. Mm -hmm. uh, so they can they can grow bigger. And someone even suggested to me that perhaps what people were seeing were um, spider crabs, but they don't live anywhere close to the Congo Basin, or coconut crabs. And on, on my channel, I had a, a clip of a coconut crab killing and devouring a seabird, a seagull. Yeah. You know, so but the but but these these seem to me to be eight-legged arachnids. They're, they're gigantic in size. They they live in in the forest and they've been observed uh, by white people. The same with the the mystery ape called the dodo or dodu, mm. which um, is a very tall, powerful ape-like creature that can walk on two legs. It has long head hair, much like a human being. The pygmies say that it has head hair like a a white woman, <laughs> and uh, they say this thing is so ferocious that it attacks gorillas on sight. Oh. And we did get one eyewitness report from a plantation owner in uh, Cameroon who witnessed a doad and a, a male gorilla battling it out with each other. Oh. He got pretty scared and disappeared quick. He didn't want to see who won. Yeah, uh, a bit like Mokeli and Bembe, you know, like we had uh, a report from 1936, a Frenchman. Uh, working in, uh, he was up in the, the upper Sangha River and he was out hunting with some Congolese guides and they witnessed a Mokele and Bembe battling a hippo. And Mokele was lashing the, the, no, the hippo, I'm sorry, a crocodile. And the Mokele was lashing, hitting the crocodile with his tail and the crocodile eventually slithered away. Um, and and uh, coming up to 2010, we have reports of a Frenchman and a South African working in Wesso in the northern Congo. I've been there before right on the Sangha River, and they were working, repairing telecommunications equipment. And they're walking along the river one morning, just enjoying the morning sun, and out about a hundred or so yards out into the, uh, the river, there's a small, heavily uh, forested island. Mm -hmm. And they saw the back end of a creature, a large animal that looked like it was foraging around. And they said that the body was bigger than a hippo. They saw the real legs, short and stubby, and a long, long tail swinging back and forth. And wow. they, they tried to get a closer look at it, but the animal was obviously looking or foraging for food, and it moved into the into the, the island. Later on, they mentioned this to some of their Congolese colleagues, and they said, oh, you must have seen a Mokele and Bembe, because that area surrounding that island was heavily populated by hippos. But this particular Mokele and Bembe showed up and chased all the hippos away. So whatever these Mokele and Bembis are, they are very ferocious animals, very dangerous. Mm. Uh, they're able to easily, um, you know, kill hippos and crocodiles and anything. So it, and this is why they say when you see one in the river, you do make a wide berth because otherwise mm. it could it could attack and upend the canoe. So they, I mean, as you say, they're very territorial animals. Is this? Are they often seen in, in groups of more than one in that case? Because they also seem to be solitary. The, the sightings are normally of individuals. Is that correct? And do you think that ties into yes. their territoriality? Well, I, I think um, we've had a few scattered reports here and there. Like, for example, in the Congo in 1960, according to the two elderly eyewitness, pygmy eyewitnesses in Mfondo, when, when one of the animals was being speared to death, by the Bangombi pygmies uh, in the north end of Lake Tally, there was about three of them, uh, two large ones and a smaller one, a juvenile. 
Um, and the, one of the adults, a juvenile, retreated in the swamp while the, the, the first one was being killed by the pygmies. The Barker pygmies of Cameroon tell us that they see them occasionally, two adults and a calf, mm. uh, you know, a young one. And in fact, when uh, Peter Beach, uh, who's a, a microbiologist from, um, uh, he's from, uh, let me see, it's a city in the, the, the west coast of the United States, but Portland, Oregon. And so when Peter Beach from Portland, Oregon and Brian Sass from Regina in Saskatchewan, went back in 2004, February 2004. When we were there uh, in uh, November 2003, the water level was very high. Mm. Now, at the time, the water level was going down because it was approaching the dry season. Unfortunately for us, some late rains came along and filled the, the lake up again because you could see the tips of the caves where the, the locals said some Mokelium Bembis were still, or Lakila Bembis were still living. Mm. And as we were paddling against the current going north on the river through this narrow channel of an area they called the forbidden zone because they don't go there because of these animals. Um, a big head popped out of the water and a neck and moving along. And uh, because our boatmen are standing up in the canoe and we are sitting down to maintain balance, uh, they started shouting and pointing ahead of us. And so Pierre, who was with us, stood up in the canoe and he said what he could see was a, a, a head shaped like a, like roughly like a, an American football, attached to a, a long neck that was sticking three feet out of the water and it was moving along. But as soon as the sound of our, of our voices reached this animal, it dipped his head under. Now, the, this could not have been a snake or uh, a lizard or a turtle, anything like that, because we were paddling against a strong current and the, the that current would have affected any smaller animal swimming. It would have mm. it would have brought them towards us. So our guide said this animal was walking along the bottom. Wow. And uh, you know, and there was a, there was a cave on the Congo side of the river, and there was a cave on this island on the Cameroon side of the river. This is mm. in the Jar River. And uh, when Brian Sass and, and Peter Beach went back in February two thousand the water level had dropped right down to a few feet. And uh, there was a, a branch or, or remains of a tree that was kind of sticking out of the water at the time. And they were able to measure the height of the, of the river or the, or the depth of the river at the time oh, wow. we saw this head okay. and neck, and it was 20 feet. Wow. So whatever was, whatever this creature was walking across the river, mm. it was walking through 20 feet of, of, of river and its head was still able to come out of the water. Wow. Amazing. And so when they examined the area around the island, they found massive footprints pressed deep, deep, deep into the mud. Now, Pierre Sima is a seasoned elephant tracker. He actually takes tourists through the forest to track elephants for them so they can film them and so on. And he said these prints were bigger than an elephant would make and they were very, very deep. And they were able to determine there was two adults and one small animal. Mm that were moving around and the foliage, the leaves and fruits were stripped from the branches of the trees to a height of 18 feet. So these were very large, very powerful animals. And I should mention there are no elephants in this area. There are no giraffes in this area. Giraffes are savanna animals. And so we, when we were exploring this one area every day, uh, we had trouble trying to find the, uh, you know, the same boatman to take us all the time. We had to keep hiring different people 
because they were just getting spooked because this one channel between the Congo side and the Cameroon side, they would put their fishing nets up there and then they'd go back and find something had torn the nets up. Um, really want to ask you about is your conclusions about the taxonomic identity of animals like the Mokelian Bembi or the, uh, I think you mentioned the Emelian Tuka, what you think that is, but yes, there are a lot of, there's a lot of talk about living diplodocus or some kind of sauropod, but people will ask, how is this possible? How could this creature still be around to this very day? Is, is that where your theories lie on the identity of the creature or has it got something else? Well, Okay, well, look at it this way. The, the Tuatara lizard of New Zealand is a very ancient reptile. If you believe in the evolutionary theory, personally, I question it. But the Tuatara lizard, according to the fossil record, was, was around before and after whatever it was that killed off the dinosaurs. Mm. Um, I found that intriguing. Now, this animal only lays its eggs every 20 years. Um, and according to the Baka people, the Mokelian Bembi or Lakila Bembi's only breed once every 20 years. So this is a very old reptilian form. I mean, I've spoken to zoologists who were open to dis to discussing this, and they all say, well, the long neck and small lizard-like head and the long tail tells us that it's a reptile of some kind. Mm. Uh, but they won't commit to any further than that. So what we're dealing with here is either a living dinosaur um, that's um, kind of broken all the rules of paleontology. It's a, it's a semi-aquatic sauropod. Or it's um, a semi-aquatic sauropod, or it's something completely new to science that looks like a dinosaur. Mm. Either way, we'll never know that until we actually at least get some crystal clear digital footage that zoologists can study and extract mm. some, some sort of accurate zoological data. Um, as far as the horned animals are concerned, um, the Congo, um, the the Aka people of the Congo only speak of the one animal with the big polished nasal horn, uh, ivory horn, and uh, and its its habit of ambushing elephants and canoes and everything. Um, they this could, as Roy Mackall has has um, postulated, could well be uh, an unknown species of aquatic rhino, which is mm. very possible. In Cameroon, however, when they talk about these big horn mm. things with neck frills and armored bodies and living in the savannah and uh, you know uh, th th they sound to me a lot like um, you know the, the the horned dinosaurs however having said that again it could be a hitherto unknown species of armored rhino we just don't know at this point uh, but when they when we ask the Baka people to draw images of these creatures on the ground for us which they do and uh, we go to different locations and we look for eyewitnesses. And before we start showing them nice color pictures of dinosaurs, uh, we ask them, first of all, draw an image of the animals that you're familiar with. And they do that and it's consistent throughout. It's mm. sauropodian with armored body and dermal spikes and long neck, long tail, big clawed feet. Uh, and those footprints have been found by uh, Michelle Below. Or it's um, it, it's these heavy four-legged beasts with multiple horns and neck frills and everything else. We do know that whatever these animals are, they are very rare. So the challenge is finding one and filming one. Mm. Uh, the Lakila Bembis have never been killed as far as the Baka people are concerned. You couldn't kill one.
if your life depended on it, you know. But whereas in Congo, the smaller, smooth kin Mokele and Bembis can be can be speared, can be killed with spears and what have you. So this is very intriguing. Same with the giant spiders. They live in the forest. They're rare. They're encountered from time to time. And when the people encounter them, they kill them straight away mm. because they're a menace. And uh, it's the same with the, uh, they see giant crocodiles very occasionally. I think there's one crocodile. Somewhere oh, this is the Mahamba? The Mahamba, yeah. They, and now, we do have some early reports of explorers from the 20s and 30s saying that they've seen crocodiles 40, 50 feet long, you know. And, um, but I think right now in Southern Africa somewhere, uh, the, the herptologists are all agog about a crocodile they call Gustav, which mm. is about 16, between 16 and 18 feet. But um, when Michel Below went to um, one of his Cameroonian trips, they actually f um, photographed a crocodile 16 feet long. Pierre Sima told me that when he was trekking through the forest and they had to cross a, a shallow part of the river, they found uh, the, the skeletal remains or the desiccated remains of a dead crocodile on a sandbank. And the bones would have been scattered around, but when they put all the bones together, it measured out to be about 30 feet. So there are some some very big, again rare, but big crocs are still around, you know, and they could be just as hazardous as. Well, um, but yeah, big and little, yeah, absolutely. But you, now, you never see hippos there, so that's that's an interesting thing. That, I mean, that is very interesting because that's such an aggressive animal, and to have another animal that could scare, uh, you know, a herd of hippos off. I mean, that that's I think that's quite significant. Now we talked briefly uh, before this interview. We had a little chat, and you mentioned that you now live in Canada, but you're not too far from Lake Okanagan. Right. And that you may have had a cryptid encounter there in the lake. Tell, tell us a bit about that. About 2013, um, I went to Lake Okanagan with my, my late wife was with me at the time, my youngest son, Andrew. And we went there to meet David Wetzel and his wife, uh, Gloria, and uh, their children. And we were we were just, we, we were chatting and, uh, you know, we were staying at the Lake Okanagan Resort and we were having a, uh, you know, dinner together and everything. And, and Dave said, oh, let's go and rent a boat and go out on the lake, just out of the blue. And so, okay, so we uh, we went down to the jetty and you can, you can rent a boat for a few hours, you know, it's a nice twin-hulled pontoon with a, a nice uh, sun, uh, you know, like a, a screen mm -hmm. cover. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, we went out on the lake and, and he said, okay, go this way. So, okay, so we're going up the lake. And then after a, a sh about 10 minutes, it stopped at this point. And, and I said, why? He said, well, this is an Ogo Pogo hotspot. Uh, of course, I didn't expect anything was going to happen, you know. And so we were sitting there for a while. And, and just after a couple of minutes, um, we saw fish leaping out of the water in every direction. This was about, I'd say, 10, 15 feet away from the front of our boat. And, and I've seen this before as a fisherman, when a predator comes after smaller fish they scatter and uh, and the fish were leaping out all over the place and i said i i brought dave's attention look at this and before you know it these three big humps just came right out of the water big massive humps and um there was three humps and i think my son andrew thought he might have seen the head of the ogopoga just poking out of the water a sort of a an oblong shaped head with a very big mm -hmm. eye and, and people have described that to us before 
uh, when they report. The, the, obviously, this animal uh, is a deep diver, and it's, it, to me, it's probably a fish eater. So it hunts for the larger fish down in the depths. But those big hunts, they were very dark in color, perhaps a very dark greeny color. And you could see this, this ridge running the length of the humps. And just after a couple of minutes, when we kind of gathered our senses, it began to move forward. And then it slowly sank out of sight and it left this massive wave behind it. And uh, Dave whipped out his camcorder and filmed it. It, it was practically gone and just left this massive wave. Um, now, last year, in September last year, just, just for a break, um, I went to Lake Okanagan again to meet my old friend, John Kirk. John and I had been to Africa together a couple of times. And again, we went out on a boat and we were, this was late September, apparently the best time of year to see an Ogopogo. When they're most active is, um, I think, um, late September through to October. And that sounds like it might be part of their reproductive cycle. But well, we did see some large objects briefly breaking the water or swimming just under the surface, causing these massive wakes. And we got a little bit of footage and, and, and some photographs of that. Um, what we need is to take more specialized equipment. So my plan is to go next year with a deep diving ROV, remote operating vehicle, with a 4K camera, goes down 150 meters, uh, use a fish camera that we can suspend under the boat um for you know 50 feet or more and a waterproof drone again mm. with a high resolution 4k camera that we can fly over any disturbance in the water because when you film one of these animals moving through the water and some good footage has been taken at lake okanagan and lake sushwap which is only about a, a an hour and a half drive away um, and you see these serpentine forms going through the water Critics easily dismiss that as just being unusual waves or two waves coming together yeah, and, and creating a pattern. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but, if, but if we have that, that, that high quality drone, and in this case, I have a waterproof drone, that you can fly over the disturbance and film downwards, um, you know, to, sorry, my cat just got on the way. <laughs> Um, to film to film downwards, uh, you know, then you can get a good look at what is uh, breaking the surface of the water and moving along. So the, this interests me is the um, is the Ogopogo of Lake Okanagan, um, uh, the same animal I believe inhabits Lake Sushwap, and mm. possibly maybe later on we can look at go to the west coast, and uh, we can uh, perhaps do a little bit of Cadborosaurus research as well. Wow. Sounds, um, I mean, it sounds amazing. Lake monsters have always been, I suppose, my, my introduction and my favourite part of cryptozoology. And uh, the Okopogo, um, I thought Arlene's, I think I got a really old copy of one of Arlene Gull's books, actually. Still, it's, you know, it's in its treasured position. It would be a, a real dream. And I think you're very lucky, strangely, after all of those expeditions to faraway places to search for <laughs> mystery creatures to find one at home. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's Well, I saw, I saw something in the UK when I was there back in, uh, I think, 88, 89. Um, I was living in Kent and um, I was uh, working at a very large um, uh, supply depot uh, in Faversham in Kent. It was, uh, and I was, um, I was actually supervising the security team there. Uh -huh. And we were getting reports of rabbits being found ripped to pieces and everything. 
And people said they were seeing these very large black cats mm-hmm. stalking the undergrowth, you know. And so, as it happens, uh, there was a lot of um, rough uh, ground around the depot. And we picked up on one of the security cameras a very large black cat that was slowly stalking rabbits. And um, they didn't seem to be that scared of people because um, when I was driving to work, I spotted one of them inside the chain lick fence of a another facility. So I pulled to the side of the road, got and just looked across the fence and there was this huge black cat just sitting on a, a couple of uh, packing cases, you know, that were, uh, you know, just, just sleeping. And uh, well, it woke up and looked at me and it was about four times the size of, of the biggest domestic cat that I could tell you about. And so I've, I've seen them, I saw these these big black predatory cats that uh, you see commonly in Kent. And of course, I've seen the Ogopogo. Back in 2002, I think, or 2003, when I was down in uh, Oklahoma, at the Kaimichi Mountains, near a town called Hanobi, I know a couple of brothers there who do Bigfoot research. Oh, yeah. And we would we would hear the screams at night, these high-pitched vocalizations that you couldn't wow. really match to anything else. We went up on a, uh, um, a game trail the next morning up in the mountains, and uh, we found footprints like uh, this this big, you know, um, uh, the uh, whatever this was, and they say Bigfoot. It was obviously following or moving up the game trails, um, probably following deer, you know, because mm. uh, they, seem to, they seem to like deer. So and they found some. They found, they found deer carcasses uh, with uh, the livers missing. Wow! Uh, for some reason, you know, and um, there's been reports in that area occasionally of dogmen and things like that. And talking about dogmen, of course, sadly we lost Linda Godfrey. Yes. yes days ago, I s- never met Linda. I spoke to her a few times on the phone. Mm-hmm. We swapped books. I got a couple of her books autographed. I she was a re- you. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she was a really lovely lady. And, oh, she was, uh, I, yeah, I mean, just uh, somebody so popular to have that yeah. level of time for every individual she met. I think that's very unusual. Well, she invited me down to her neck of the woods to do some dogman research. And I, of course, um, the, the thing that, that um, kind of put a, a block on all my um you know, one uh, expeditions was the fact that when my wife was uh, mm. diagnosed with terminal cancer in 2018, um, and of course I sold my business. I had a very good company at the time uh, that I was building up. I had a, I owned a security guard service. We had 127 oh, yes. employees. I was doing really well, and then that allowed me the freedom to travel mm. and do research because I didn't need to ask permission from an employer. You know, I could just go. And and leave the manager look after the company. But, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, I sold the company and just stayed with my wife who passed away in January last year. And uh, since then, I've just kind of been, you know, deciding what I'm going to do now for the mm. future. So, but I'd l- very much like to um, go back to Africa. But um, right now, there's a lot of unrest, as they say, in uh, southern Cameroon, where mm. all the research is done. There's a couple of rebel groups active now in Cameroon, and um, the southeast province uh, was where this breakaway English-speaking group um, uh-huh. has has been trying. What they're trying to do, they're trying to annex southern Cameroon okay. and northern yeah. Cameroon. So they want southern Cameroon to be French-speaking and northern Cameroon to be English-speaking. Okay. Uh, and so, but the, that rebel group have now 
expanded their operations, as it were, into southeast Cameroon, where we do our research. And so they obviously, if you're a foreigner and you're in that area, the chances mm. are, yeah, you could be abducted, held for ransom, whatever the case might What's be. What's it like so on the, want... the DRC Congo side? Is it the same situation still? Congo side is, as far as I know, is relatively stable. Mm. Um, but you, wherever you go in that area now, you need to take some armed protection okay. with you. Like my friend Michel below, he takes a, at least one or two armed police officers and a couple of uh, of the uh, the what they call the eco guards, ecology guards that are employed by the World Wildlife Fund. And by the way, a couple of those guards have encountered that giant ape, the dodo, in the forest. And that, so, that's very interesting to me, the dodo. I mean, it's um, very unexpected when I started looking to the subject to find so many uh, mystery ape sightings throughout Africa? Well, there, there is, I believe, a mystery ape in uh, Sumatra or somewhere um, where uh, anthropologists take seriously. Um, mm. uh, the, uh, the orang batan or something. But, um, but, the, but the mystery ape in Cameroon, they don't seem to take very seriously. I don't know why. But I think the main the, the main criticism we get from, from uh, the scientific world is, well, no serious scientist goes and looks for these creatures. It's, on, it's left to creationists. Well, yeah, but what if we find something? What if we film something? Then they'll accuse us of faking the film. You know, you can, sometimes you, you can't win with these people. But if you're doing something closer to home, like, uh, like Lake Okanagan or, or Lake Sushwap, or your Cadborosaurus, you know, I mean, I believe the technology we have at our disposal now will really oh, make the difference. Getting very serious, yeah. I mean, of course, uh, there's the eDNA side as well, which can be very handy in many cases. And um, yes, yeah, although it's sort of not having the DNA of the thing you're looking for in file is problematic. <laughs> you know, nobody really talks about that aspect of well, it. It's, it's so very true. Yeah. yeah. But I understand that recently Loch Ness. There have been more sightings of recent of, of odd things on the surface. Also, one yeah. of Tim Binsdale's sons went on a, he was on a, a TV show where they, they took some divers to Loch Ness and they picked something up in the sonar, a very large creature resting on a, a shelf under the mm -hmm. water and the divers went down. And while there's very poor visibility in Loch Ness, they did encounter a very, very large creature mm. that quickly uh, vacated the, the area and swam into the depths as the divers approached with their, with their big spotlights. But I always think that you're probably better off going to uh, Mo, uh, uh, Lake Loch Morar uh, because you got yeah. more right there. Loch Morar is, uh, the water's very clear. Uh, it's not as murky as Loch Ness, and I'm told that that would be, even Bernard Heuvelmans once told me, don't bother with Loch Ness, because he's, he's dived there twice and said, you can't see anything down there. Yeah. Why don't you go to Loch Morar, because you'll have much better chances of observing something interesting. Yeah, and that's how right. I, yeah, and that's how I believe that top-of-the-range sonar, um, underwater ROVs with, with top-notch cameras and drones could mm -hmm. very well um, uh, bring back the good for us. You know, you, the, if you film something extraordinary using the very best of equipment, uh, mm -hmm. then that certainly would advance the research. But I would also like to go to other places like uh, Lake Champlain. It's beautiful. Or, uh, I've been there. Very beautiful lake. Yes, uh, very big too. I understand. Mm. And also, um, and also maybe Lake Memphremagog in uh, Quebec. 
where people see a similar large animal there. So there's lots of homegrown cryptozoology mysteries to explore. Oh, I mean, that's right on your doorstep. You're in prime cryptid territory there, William, I think, and um, I'm slightly envious. You know, apart from the beauty, the beautiful um, environment on all sides, everywhere in Canada, you know, it's, uh, it's a very pristine place in many respects, I think. Yes. Uh, you have a whole host of mystery animals that you could just... Uh, travel to find nearby without having to delve into the, the swamps of the Congo and uh, in the jungles right. of South America. That's right. One thing I wanted to ask you before we finish is, is just uh, what's in store for you coming coming up next year? And I usually have uh, some expeditions planned possibly and to Lake Okanagan and elsewhere. But where can people find your work? Where can they find the videos? And the books? Okay, right. The best well, I have, I, I have a, uh, I have a, a channel on YouTube. It's called Crypto Hunt. That's two separate words. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I have to start uh, putting a few new presentations on there. Um, and I'm getting slightly better at making videos now because I'm a, I'm a tech, techno dinosaur. So, but, Thanks. but um, I'm using a very user friendly. Uh, video editing software and it's uh, helping me to improve the quality of presentations each time I put one up so and I use a lot of things like stock footage and all that kind of thing Um, so uh, Crypto Hunt is my uh, YouTube channel and um, my books I haven't written one since 2010 but if you want the Mokele and Bembe book Mokele and Bembe Mystery Beast of the Congo Basin you can find that on Amazon and um, I also like to to um, just um, pay a little bit of a tribute to to Linda Godfrey mm. and also to Arlene Gall. The yeah. she was the foremost investigator, journalist, and investigator into the Ogopogo. And I, I met her years ago. She invited me to her home, and we swapped wow. a couple of books. And uh, she was a lovely, lovely lady. Mm. And going way back to 1986, after I came back from the Congo the first time, I was uh, Tim Dinsdale invited me to his house, and uh, we we sat and and uh, and talked for hours. And uh, it was so nice to have met these pioneers mm. of uh, cryptozoology and having known them personally. You and know, what a met- start in the genre, William, to to meet what really were the the greatest movers and and trailblazers of this genre. It's a golden age that I don't think will ever be repeated again. No, well, you know, um, I I think we're really standing. Well, we're really standing on their shoulders, aren't we? Mm, Um, But I I did say one day, if we find Mokele and Bambi, we'll name it after Roy Mackall. If we find the Dode, the mystery ape, we would name it after Bernard Heubermans because he was very big on cryptid apes. Um, if we if we do get Ogopogo officially recognized, we will name it after Arlene Gall. You know, I think they, they are far more deserving than me of, of having uh, new major species named after them. Well, uh, with that in mind, and we could call it the Macale in Bembe, by the way. Sorry for the terrible pun. Macale in Bembe, yeah. uh, <laughs> I mean, after Roy Michael. And um, uh, yeah, well, look, thank you very much for such an informative debriefing as we said uh, of your time in cryptozoology i've enjoyed your work for years and years and years and oh, learned so much you. from it and uh i've really appreciated this chat it's uh it's kind of it's it's off a, a tick off my bucket list so thank you Ian. well it's been my pleasure thank you again andy well we'll thank talk again so i'm sure we'll talk again in the future very soon i hope take care <laughs> indeed bye take care bye bye